Well, good morning. Good morning to those of you um, over in the Modern Worship Service. It is great to have you with us as well. And good morning to the family of faith here again. Just a wonderful time of baptism in this room. And hopefully, uh, and I know, a wonderful time there over in the other room as well as we see the story of God working in people's hearts and in people's lives. And we are so grateful to come together. If you're one of our guests in the worship time, uh, during this hour, we worship in two rooms, and then we come together via video for the preaching of the Word of God. So that's why I'm talking to another room. <laughs> and so we are grateful, grateful they have joined us. Our series, Culture, Politics, and the Church, and there is no question what's on our hearts and minds uh, is the election this coming Tuesday. And so we want to address that today, and um, I'll never forget the first time that I voted in a presidential election, I was a sophomore at Liberty University, and um, it was in 1988, and I had the privilege of, of, of uh, voting absentee ballot, and uh, the two candidates at the time were, uh, the two primary candidates were George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis, for those of you who remember that. And every time I think of voting, Barry, um, uh, I think of the word George H.W. Bush, I think of him when he would say, um, no new taxes. Remember that? He said, read my lips, no new tax, right? And so I just think, of, I, I just have that ringing in my mind the first time that I voted. And, um, First time I went with my parents voting was uh, when we, I was seven years old. I remember my dad coming home and it was dark and he picked up my mom and, and, and we went to vote. So I, I love this. I come out of politics in the sense that when I finished school, I, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a while. So I, I really come out of that, that world into seminary, and, and so this is it's always a special day. It's always an exciting day. I, I, I'm a traditionalist. Some of you have voted already. I read this morning that over 30 million people have voted already. And in 2012, there were only 126 million people that cast votes. That's a big chunk of people who have already voted. But whether you vote early or whether you vote absentee or you're traditionalist like me, you like to go in on Tuesday, pull that lever. It is a great day to celebrate being an American. And I hope you can appreciate that because this is really a privilege. This isn't like those elections, you know, over in some of these communist countries or in some of these socialist countries. Countries that are run by dictators where, you know, you hear them say they had an election and, and the uh, dictator won, you know, 98% of the vote. Like they really, really had an opportunity to vote. This isn't like that. We have the privilege and we have the freedom to shape our government. We are the government. We, the people, are the office holders in that we put people in our place to represent us. It's an amazing, an amazing process. So we hope you take advantage of it. So we're Americans first. If you have one hat that we all can wear together, uh, we put the sticker on, the I voted sticker on, it's the American hat. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But then when you step into the voting booth, something else happens. You put on another hat. You take off your American hat and, and you put on a hat where you suddenly have to choose between a party or a platform or a candidate or a viewpoint. You suddenly have to step in there and you have to choose. So you have to wear a different hat. And ultimately, we have the privilege as Americans to vote. 
But then you, in your conscience, get to select those that will represent us. But then there's another hat that we wear. We take off the American hat, and we take off the, the hat of, of party or preference or platform or a candidate, and we put on another hat. Here's the other hat that we wear as followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, here's the hat that, that we wear and we want to address this morning. And that is ultimately your allegiance is not to country. Ultimately, your allegiance is not to a party or to a platform or even a set of ideas and beliefs. Ultimately, your allegiance is to God himself. And so my heart for you this morning as I've prepared this message and I've been thinking about it for several weeks is to shepherd you and to guide you through what I believe the scripture speaks to when it comes to this process. Now we're not going to be able to cover every single thing when it comes to this process or every single question that you might have about a candidate or every single question that you might have about an issue. We're not, we're not going to go down that road, but what I want to do is share from the Word of God and from my heart something that I believe will shepherd you as you step into that voting booth as you're ultimately accountable to God. And I take that very seriously, and I hope you do too. And let me put your mind at ease, okay? I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to endorse a candidate from the pulpit here. I guard this pulpit with my life. And I want to speak what God wants me to speak. And for some pastors, they believe that they can do that. I just haven't come to that conclusion just yet. And I'm not going to tell you who I'm going to vote for either. I know some pastors will do that. I have friends in the ministry who have done that. I've chosen simply not to do that. But what I want to do is speak very clearly and very openly about what Jesus reminds us of in his ministry about politics and then make some application to this Tuesday, okay? Matthew chapter 22. Jesus doesn't speak much about politics, but he, he speaks much with just a simple question that he asks and a, and a, and a simple follow-up statement to his question. In Matthew chapter 22, so go ahead and turn there in both rooms. If you have a copy of the Word of God with you, great. If not, there's one in this room in the pew rack right in front of you or the pew rack right behind you here. Um, you can turn on your digital device, whatever you might need to help you. But I want you to see for yourself the words of Jesus here and the words of the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to Bible study, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you can find the break between the Old and the New Testaments, Matthew is the very first book. Chapter 22, it's near the end, and it's near the end of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. In fact, it's the final week uh, of his, his life before the resurrection, he's entered into Jerusalem when we come to this chapter. And he's done a couple of things. Here's what Jesus has done. He has raised political hopes of many, many people. Because on Sunday of this week, he, he has come in riding on a donkey. And the crowds put down palm branches. And they sing that song from the book of Psalms. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the minds and in the hearts of many of those people who are singing that, here is what they read 
into the psalm, and here's what they read into the life and ministry of Jesus, that the Messiah has come. Not just a spiritual Messiah for many, but maybe for most of those people who are part of this popular Jesus movement, maybe the reason that they're saying he has come, we're excited, is because the political Messiah will overthrow Rome. Because Rome has come in and has, ever since approximately 60 years before Jesus comes on the scene, they have ruled over the Jewish people, and the Jewish people don't like it. So when they see this Messiah, maybe it's him. So he's raised political hopes for some. But then he did something that really confounded people, and it really raised the religious anger of others, and that is when he went into the temple, and he's teaching and preaching in the temple, and he's saying some hard and difficult things in the temple. If you read the last week of his ministry, Jesus really, really says some things that causes people to be angry, but then he throws out the money changers. He goes in for those people who were misusing the temple for profit, and he goes in, and he throws them out. And so for those who are politically hopeful, Jesus has raised the flag. For those who are are religious, they don't fully understand what Jesus is doing in this last week. But everybody who is in leadership there in Jerusalem and everybody who is in leadership and connected to Rome, they want to see one thing happen. Despite how popular he is or despite the things that confound him, they want to kill him. They're tired of him. They're tired uh, uh, of this movement that has started and they sense the people want to see this take place. Religiously, they don't get him. He's not fully in line with Rome, but is he fully in line with the, the religious leaders, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Clearly not, and they want to do away with them. So we come to Matthew 22 with that in mind, knowing that they want to kill him. And here is what, He says, follow with me along in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and planned, plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Anyone smell anything funny going on so far? Tell us then, what do you think? Here it comes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Now, you might be saying to yourself, what's the big deal? Jesus just told them to pay their taxes. What's the big deal? He just told them if the IRS comes, you owe this amount of money, you should pay it. 
But here's what you have to understand about this contest, and this is why on the front end, they thought long and hard, how are we going to trap him to kill him? I mean, they just don't want him to stumble a little bit. They want him to step in something so big that either the religious people no longer support him, or or the, uh, uh, the popular, the people that supported him when he's healing and he's teaching, and the religious elite, rather, want the religious, the people that are following him, they want his popularity to just, just to deflate. They, they want to they do away with him religiously. And on the other hand, the political people want to see him step into something that signals to Rome that he's one of these revolutionary Messiah-type guys that Rome has had to deal with often. Now, we see these two views in these two groups of people. Notice, the Pharisees send their disciples and the Herodians. Now, these two groups couldn't be any more different in Jesus' day. And this is what makes this story so interesting. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees. These are the keepers of the law. These are the guardians of the law. So the law that comes all the way down from Moses, they keep it, they guard it, all the traditions. And here's what the Pharisees want to do. They want to see the law of God in every aspect of life, in every aspect of civilization among the Jewish people there. They want to see the law of God come to bear. And the people respect the Pharisees because they want to be so righteous, but at the same time, they fear the Pharisees because the burden of righteous living is so great, they can't do it. So that's on one side. And the Pharisees send their disciples to go talk to Jesus. And the Pharisees and their disciples have distant cousins named the Zealots. This is another political group. So you have the Pharisees here, you have the the Herodians over here. Over here next to the Pharisees are the Zealots. Now the Zealots are like the Pharisees, and they believe that the rule of God should be pervasive in every aspect of Jewish life. But the Pharisees, when it comes to Rome, who comes in and begins to usurp their power over them and to tax them and to rule over them, the Pharisees buck and bray a little bit. They don't like it. They don't believe that a godless pagan empire should come in and tell the people of God what to do because the people of God need to rule and reign according to the law of God. How dare they? And they buck and bray a little bit. The zealots, oh man, they, they don't buck and bray. They go after it. They're revolutionaries. They're ready to start war with Rome. And so that is why the people who are probably mostly encamped in these groups here, when they see Jesus coming, they say, that's him. He's going to overthrow Rome. We knew it. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Here he comes as a Messiah coming in. We know he's going to do it. He's going to overthrow Caesar, and that's why Jesus has such great popularity, but the religious leaders understand that he's a little bit different. They want to do away with him, and so they want to trap him. So from the Pharisees' viewpoint, if they can get Jesus to say, you know what? You know what? When it comes to the tax and the tax, what what is a tax? It's a tax that the the Romans would would uh, ask the people to give. They demand that they would give. The people had taxes. They had had temple taxes. They had indirect taxes from Rome. But this was the one tax that the Pharisees could not stand. Why? Because it was given directly to Caesar. And so they knew if they could catch Jesus saying, you know what? You know what? Um, 
Give to Caesar his money. Give to Caesar his money. They could point to the people and say, look, look, your leader's not a... He believes that Rome should rule and reign. He believes that Caesar shouldn't be overthrown. He's really not from God because he doesn't want the rule and reign of God on earth like we do. See, we got him, right? On the other hand, though, the Herodians know, this is the other group, the Herodians is a group that is affiliated with Rome. And these are the, this is a political group that uh, follows the Herods, the, the line of Herod. Herod the Great was the king. When Jesus was a baby boy, he killed all the, all the babies that were two years old, all the male babies that were two years old. He passes away. He gives the kingdom to his son. So here's this political group, and they cozy up to the Herods, and they want the power that comes from Rome to Herod. Herod was, was half Jew. And so he knew how to work the system. He knew how to stay close to the Jewish people, but stay close to Rome. And so from him, his wicked sons come, and this political group says, you know what, we're not worried about the religious people. Only when we want power will we get close to them. (laughs) Only when we want something to happen will we get close. But other than that, our allegiance is to Rome. So they know this. This Jesus guy is a pretty popular guy. How are we going to do away with him? So if we can get him to say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't give to Caesar. That, that tax that you have, oh, no, 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 no. I'm over with the Pharisees and the Zealots. I'm over here, so don't give to Caesar. If the Herodians catch him saying that, then they can say he is an insurrectionist. He is someone that, that is going to cause a revolution. He's just like them. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't side with the religious purists. He doesn't side with the political powerful. He goes right down the middle. And what does he say? Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, but give to God the things that belong to God. And they stand back and they go, we missed it. How did he do that? And here's what Jesus is doing, though. Jesus just isn't getting getting out of a pickle. Here's what he's doing. He's setting up for his followers an understanding about politics. And about government. And Jesus doesn't speak much about politics and government, but he does something here that that is so new for the people who are religious and the people who are very political, their eyebrows kind of go up. And here's what Jesus is saying. Thought number one this morning. We declare the allegiance of God. This is what Jesus has come come to do, declare allegiance to his Father. As a, and as followers of Jesus, we want to declare our allegiance to God and to his kingdom. But here's how we do it. Number one, we declare our allegiance to the kingdom of God by how we participate in the kingdom of men. Do you realize that how you declare Jesus this week depends upon, in part, how you participate and honor the kingdom of of men. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to these people who, who really can't believe it, yeah, you're, you're to honor the king. You're, you're to honor Rome. But Jesus, they're pagan. Jesus, you know who the Caesar, he, Caesar says he is on, on that coin when, when Jesus says, who, whose picture is on here? It's a picture of Caesar, and there's a description which calls him the son of the divine. 
Jesus, on that coin that we're supposed to pay Rome, on that coin that calls uh, a Caesar a God, you know, that violates the commandments, and that violates everything we believe in, and Rome violates uh, everything that we stand for. And, And Jesus surprises them, and he says, listen, the way you'll declare your allegiance to me is by the way you participate in the kingdom of men. You honor them. You honor them. You submit to them. These are words of the New Testament. You honor, you submit to the authorities. Peter and Paul would do this. Peter and Paul would lose their lives. Oh, there, there's there's, a, there's a, a line that you cannot cross. We'll look at that next week. What does it mean to submit to authority, but yet there are times when, when disobedience is called for? Well, where is that? And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to submit myself to Rome in just a few days, and I'm going I'm to pay an ultimate price. Peter and Paul would pay an ultimate price. But you demonstrate to the world around you your allegiance to me by the way you honor and submit and participate in the kingdom of men. And it's a wonderful reminder to us, where do we put our hope? Where do we, as we participate this Tuesday, or maybe you voted already, or as we continue in this political process, where are you putting your hope? And as we enter into this political process, Jesus reminds us of something, that it's a fallen, broken process. The Pharisees don't have it together politically. The Sadducees and the, and, and the Herodians don't have it together politically. They are fallen people. They are sinful. The, the political process that we enter into is a, is a fallen, broken process. So as you go into it, Jesus reminds his followers, be aware. Be aware of the pitfalls of using religion using religion like a sledgehammer to get your way in the political process. And then on the other side, Jesus says, hey, be aware, be aware over here that that there are people who want to wield the political power sledgehammer, but they're going to come over here. They're going to cozy up to the religious to do that. Be aware, he says. And he says, "Follow, follow my lead on this. Follow my lead. Give to Caesar what is his. Give him honor. Yield to him. And so doing that, you display your allegiance to the kingdom of God because your hope is not in getting what you want religiously. Your hope is not in getting what you want politically. Your hope is declared in the kingdom of God and he will do what is right. Now here's the interesting thing. Is that democracy is is something that we enjoy and it's not available there in the first century it's something that if you were a follower of christ in the first century under one of the emperors in rome you would have nowhere near any of their it it would be remarkable them for them to to understand the what we have here and so i think it's important to shift here just a little bit and understanding that as jesus calls us to honor our political processes, to honor our government. How do we do that? And I believe we've been given a God-given freedom, God-given privileges to enter into the voting booth, to enter into the political processes, for some of us to, to run for office, for some of you to be engaged fully in political life because we have the freedom to do so. God has granted us incredible opportunities. 
to declare our allegiance to the kingdom of God in a free and open society, in a free and open government. So here's the question, how do we do that? Because the people in Jesus' day didn't have to answer the same questions that you do about this coming election day. They just simply have to live with whatever Caesar decides. So how do we operate, though? How do we take what Jesus has said? And we honor the process. We honor politics. All right, here's the second thing. We declare our allegiance to the kingdom of God by permeating a love of God and love of neighbor into our politics. Here's how I think we do it. We take what God has said about loving him and loving our neighbor, something that stretches all the way back to the New Testament, and we take it and we apply it to life today, to culture today. It doesn't have to be just in the voting booth, but it can be all of life. This is how we communicate and declare our allegiance to God by how we love him and we love our neighbor. It should be something we just do on a regular basis, but particularly when it comes to election season, here is the prism through which I believe God wants us to look. Are we loving God or are we loving our neighbor? When God set up his society there for the people of Israel, here's what he said. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And as you think of your neighbor and as you think of the foreigner, you love them as you love yourself. So with that standard, what does it look like for us? Certainly there are all kinds of issues that are out there that the Bible does not address politically. There's a whole litany of them. There are some political issues where the Bible addresses it indirectly. But there are some things that the Bible does speak to directly as to how we are to love God and to love our neighbor. I went through some of them last week. For instance, on the issue of, of being made in the image of God, that has ramifications for the opportunities we have this Tuesday to say we believe, not just in a particular cause, but we believe that the Creator has so fashioned life in such a way, in his image, and he's given, he stamped people with the image of God, and therefore we want to protect that innocent life. We believe uh, it is loving to our neighbor, I do, that I oppose racism, that I, that I, want, to, I want to see racism stamped out of society. I, I don't believe the heart of God is anywhere near, near racism and, and, and prejudice. He's a holy God and he made people in his image. So if I love God and I love my neighbor, I want to see to it that I live in such a way. And if I have an opportunity in such a way to say to people around me, I love God, I love my neighbor because he's made in the image of God. So therefore, I'll do whatever I can to show that and declare the kingdom of God. When it comes to, to homosexuality and, 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 and sexual issues, when it, look, look, here's the deal. If we look at it this way, that God has so designed marriage as a good thing, as a loving thing, and that he has created it in a way for the good of moms and dads and their children and husbands and wives. And I love the future and I love our children. Why wouldn't I stand up and say, God has designed something beautiful and wonderful. And I want to see that. I want to see that prolonged for the good of my neighbor. 
not just because I'm a moral prude. No, no. Issues of poverty. You know how much the Bible talks about poverty? Do you know how much God looks at the people of God? So it's the church. It's us. I get it. It's me. It's Paul. It's, it's how do I give and how do I, I help those who are poor? But God speaks to peoples and nations who mistreat the lowly and mistreat those who are poor. God speaks to, to nations how they mistreat foreigners and how they use their power. God writes books in the Old Testament through prophets to tell those nations the way you use your power, you will stand before God. All of these issues, we, we come on Tuesday morning and we say, okay, here's my lens. Will this mean that, will I declare that I love God and love my neighbor? Man, it's not easy. It's not easy. But that's the lens we have to look through. But then, then there's something else that I think the Word of God speaks to, and that's character. That's character. Is that particular candidate one who we see as declaring or exemplifying or honoring the character of leadership that we find in the Word of God? Now, this is a tough one, isn't it? Because as we see in all the scriptures, kings, leaders, politicians aren't perfect. Pastors, shepherds aren't perfect. There are no perfect people. But the scripture is very, very clear about leaders and how they will lead. Not just what they will do, but how they will lead. Will they lead with honesty and with integrity? Will they lead with compassion? The Old Testament accuses the, the leaders of Israel for the way that they have abused the sheep and the way that they have misled the sheep by the way that they treat them. All of these things are important. So let's meet this thing head on. Here's the number one question that I've received, and that is this, pastor. On one hand, there's a, there's a political candidate here who, um, that is running for office who espouses more of a view and will do some of the things that I hear um, you talking about last week and this week, and, 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 and he is the candidate, and, and she is not the candidate who, who, will, who will do the things that I think stamp God's love and, and, and love of neighbor and love of, of God on, on, on my vote there. And so, Pastor, what do we do? What do we do? This is the number one question, by far, number one question that I received about this election. And, and so I, I've been praying through this. I've been thinking through this. How do, you, how do you address when, yes, yes, both candidates, major party candidates in the area of ethics and morals are struggling to meet a standard that we would deem necessary? What do you do? Man, it's a great question. And here's where I've landed Here's where I've landed. You decide. And in your conscience, you, you have to begin to prioritize. Man, I've, I've got pastor friends who 
I've read things over the last couple of weeks. I have pastor friends who are all over the map on this. Some that are writing in candidates, some that are voting straight party one way, some that, I mean, it's amazing what some of these candidates are doing. I know some of you here, you, 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 might, be, you, you might be, hey, I'm not even in that camp, pastor. I, I, I get that. You might be voting for someone totally different, but I'm just telling you, this is the number one question that I fielded, and here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. In your conscience, you need to examine the word of God, what it has to say about the leadership of its people, of, of, of nations. And you need to examine, you need to examine, is, the, is love of God and love of neighbor going to be produced through that particular candidate in the policy? So you've got character and you've got policies. And then on the other side, if you, if you vote for one candidate or the other and, and the other person gets elected in, what does that mean? And you simply have to weigh all of those things and come to your own conclusions. But I would say this, simply just don't dismiss a political candidate solely because of their character, because all of us are flawed. All of us are sinful. But likewise, don't fully embrace a candidate with character that does not in your heart and in your conscience before God that you can put in the office and say, lead our people, lead my family. You can't say that. Don't fully embrace without listening to the Holy Spirit. Don't fully embrace simply because you want to get things done. You've got to walk through that wisely with great discernment. And you've got to go before the Lord. And you've got to go before him and ask him, as I weigh these things, Father, how do I prioritize? How do I prioritize? And, and he, he, here's the final thing. I know we've got to go. Here's the final thing that I think ties into this. Once you do, once you do, you declare your allegiance to the kingdom of God by leaving your vote and your lives in the hands of the sovereign king. <laughs> I, I want you to leave with hope. We declare our allegiance to God. Here's what we do. We pray and we seek the leadership of the Holy Spirit and we take this seriously. But once we do, we leave our vote and we leave our lives in the hands of the sovereign king of the universe. Because there is only one political savior and he's not a republican and he's not a democrat and he's not an independent he's not a tea party person there's one political savior and it's the one who spoke those words hey render to caesar but render to god and three days later that one political savior went before Pilate, and Pilate looked at him, and he said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one that they keep clamoring about and talking about? And he looks at, the, at Pilate, and he says simply this, my kingdom is not what? Of this world. I'm not, this is, this is not why I'm here. I'm not here for political shenanigans and political games. I've left my followers to do what is honorable and right and declare the kingdom of God that way. But there is a day coming, Pilate. There's a day coming where I will return. And Philippians 2 reminds us of the ultimate election night. In Philippians 2, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this election season, our declaration is 
Jesus as Lord. Jesus is king. And we leave our vote in his hands. We leave our lives in his hands. Because he rules and he reigns. And God has not left his throne. He is not worried about who will occupy the White House. He is not worried about who will control Congress. He's not worried about that. He's worried about one thing, and that is will his followers declare the lordship of Jesus Christ in every aspect of their life? And will they declare the love of God and love of neighbor and how they participate? And will they, during this process, not act like the guys on Fox News or the guys on MSNBC or the guys on CNN? Did I cover it? Left, right, whatever? Did I get it? Not act like them but instead act humbly and honorably, loving people within the body of Christ, speaking humbly outside the body of Christ, and thus we can participate, and thus we can be active and engage our culture, and thus we can say, this is what it means to love God and love our neighbor, and this is what it means to declare Jesus as Lord. We can do all that. We can do all that. And we have great hope have great hope. It's okay. It's okay. He's in charge. He's in charge. Next week, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll have a new president. We'll wake up, and there'll be a new president on, on Wednesday morning. What does it mean? Next week. Next week. One simple story, and then we'll close. I don't know if you saw, if you follow baseball, the Chicago Cubs Ran, won the World Series the first time in 107 years. How do you like that for a drought, right? There's hope for some of you sports fans. And I love the story of this man who, his father died when he was in his early 50s. And is a man from North Carolina. And the night that the Cubs played in Game 7 of the World Series, or sometime prior to it, he gets in his car and he drives over 600 miles up to Indianapolis. And he sits at the graveside of his dad. Do you see this? He sits at the graveside of his dad. And he's got a flashlight, and it's on his radio, and he's listening to the Game 7 of the World Series at the grave of his dad. And the reason why is because when his dad was living, they made a pact together. And they said, will you, let's be together when the Cubs win. <laughs> let, 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 let's, let's listen to it. We're going to watch it together when the Cubs win. And his dad dies at a very young age, 53. I was back in 1980. And all these years later, he remembered what his father said. Let's watch this together. And all those years, regardless of whether they won or whether they lost, whether they were up and whether they're down, if you're a cubby, you know there's a lot of down. There's a lot of loss, right? All those years, faithful. We're going we're gonna to be together. We're going to do it. Looking, hopeful, waiting for that day. I think that's who we are in the world of politics. Our Father says there's going to be a day where we will win. And it'll be a win unlike anything you've ever seen. And you look towards that day. Now you're faithful. Well, there'll be a day. And you'll see. And we'll be together. 
And it'll be the ultimate victory. But you demonstrate my faithfulness to you. And you show your love for me by simply enduring and waiting until then. That's what we do. And we do it with great hope. Because in the end, he wins. Let's pray together. Father, your spirit is so good. And I simply pray that you would take a message like this in both rooms and by your spirit speak to your people and give them hope and give them confidence and give them leadership this week. Give them leadership and give us soft hearts. May we not be angry. May we not be worried. May the news, be, may, may the news not say, oh, all the, all, the, all the evangelicals are upset and anxious and worried now. Or they're overly jubilant because salvation has come. Instead, Lord, may we stay right in line with Jesus, giving to Caesar, giving to our government the things that can honor it, but yet ultimately our allegiance is in you. Father, I pray the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life for our forgiveness would be applied to our hearts this week. And may it be opened in the hearts of some who've never trusted him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you this morning for your Holy Spirit and for speaking to me. I pray you've spoken to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.